Welcome to ECDHR in Conversation with Saudi Women, presented by Deborah, Manon, Mariangela, and Sherry. And I'm Amel from the Women Human Rights Defenders Regional Coalition in the Middle East and North Africa. The Women Human Rights Defenders Regional Coalition in the Middle East and North Africa is a feminist network of women human rights defenders from the region and it aims to advocate on their behalf, support their efforts and activities in addition to produce knowledge on topics such as well-being and advocacy. We also at the coalition coordinate and liaise emergency support for women human rights defenders and our aim is to both create and maintain a feminist network of women human rights defenders where they can stand in solidarity with each other, support each other, produce knowledge, exchange experiences and advance their efforts in defense of human rights. We hope that through this series you will get a better understanding of the women's rights situation in Saudi Arabia and why our participants left the country. All of them are now very active in the fight for human rights and this might be a great opportunity for you to get inspiration from amazing women. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. Hello and welcome. I'm joined by Dr. Hela al Hala is a scholar and activist from Saudi Arabia, now based in the United States. Her writings and research explore the social determinants of women's health, violence against women, and women's rights and human rights across the Arab Gulf states. She serves as an advisory board member for Human Rights Watch for the Middle East and North Africa region and the Gulf Center for Human Rights. Today, we will talk about Dr. Hala's activism to attain women's human rights in Saudi Arabia, in addition to the feminist movement in Saudi Arabia. Welcome, Dr. Hela, and thank you for agreeing to join us and share your experience. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So let's start. Do you remember how it was like growing up as a young woman in Saudi Arabia? Uh, of course. I think it's very memorable, and I still go back uh, you know, in the memory lane and try to understand the perspective since now I'm living outside of Saudi. But yeah, growing up, there is no question that any girl growing up in Saudi Arabia will have this kind of unique identity. Uh, my mother was Egyptian, my father is a Saudi. So we um, used to travel regularly to my mother's hometown in Egypt to spend our holidays. These trips have actually highlighted the differences uh, related to women's role in the two cultures, though largely similar in roots. But again, it's you know those kinds of symbolic things like Women have to be completely gender segregated in places in Saudi Arabia, but not necessarily so in Egypt. And the family is more connected in Egypt because of the ability to have everyone in, you know, in the same space. There's also the idea of uh, dress codes that has been imposed on women in Saudi. You get to see women in the planes basically taking off their abaya or their outer gown, which is imposed by the government at the time and putting them back on when they travel from Egypt back to Saudi. All those things really highlight the issue of how women should, the social rules that women should adhere to, and how it is perceived differently among people of the same faith and the same culture, you know, in different countries, which is, you know, a way for me to understand how different we are. Of course, the idea that how different the treatment of men and families in both cultures, actually, but more so in Saudi Arabia, Men have control over women's lives, you know, just by their, their, their gender. <laughs> there is nothing to it, basically. Even if he's the son, even if he is the youngest, he gets to decide the 
or be responsible for the behavior of the females in the family without any kinds of checks, basically, or balances. So I felt like all these things actually is highlighted in my childhood through different examples, through different anecdotes, how women are being witted off by the decisions of their fathers, basically, or families. There is very limited information available to women on what kind of decisions, what kind of information led to the decisions of their marriage or wedding or other kinds of choices. Many women would be forced into certain types of education, basically because it's gender segregated or it's more suitable for her family roles. So I felt like there are a lot actually to uh, contemplate as a woman going between two cultures, between you know, even a community in, in my own school back in Saudi Arabia, I lived in Jeddah, which is more of a cosmopolitan city where you get to see different groups of people. Some of them are more conservative. Some of them, uh, the groups that I actually mingled among you know, uh, the most are people who are coming from different ethnic backgrounds and, and cultures. So they were more progressive rather than the traditional, you know, groups in Saudi Arabia. So you get to see those kinds of differences and, you know, some of the women were able to forge their ways and make their choices, uh, but some are not because of the setting that they were in. There are sometimes unnecessary suffering that happened because of these things. And, you know, even when uh, women decide to stand up, the laws, for instance, the, the, the social norms will not support their choices. So the lack of social support or the lack of legal support for women complicated even when they are aware of you know the the situation that they're in and they're trying to improve their lives and and improve their lifestyle or make a choice for themselves or exercise agency these are things which were very difficult because of the fact that there is no support in the environment that they live in all these things happened of course uh, to my friends to my some of my relatives and I felt like uh, it was something that is a learning experience you know growing up in Saudi Arabia and actually one of the most, I would say, giant feminists who also had a portion of her life growing in Saudi Arabia, uh, Mona Tahawi, she's a famous journalist. She actually expressed it quite well, saying that growing or being in Saudi Arabia has traumatized her into feminism. In a way, that is, I think, the best uh, expression of how we became more sensitive of our own identity by mere uh, discrimination against us as women. Thank you for that. It sounds like your feminist consciousness was formed at a very early age. So what motivated you to become an activist in the kind of work that you do? I think being in different places with different capacities. So being a medical scientist, uh, working in a place where there are a lot of unresolved issues, for instance, working among men who holds military uh, ranks in a hospital. And because of that, they are entitled to more rights, not only because they were men, but because they were ranked. Uh, military officers, regardless of how much women were qualified, you know, educationally or professionally. Also, being in charge of a lab where you get to see the treatment of uh, the administration to both men and women. They recognize women are more hardworking, more um, successful in their education and professional pursuits. But at the same time, they're not given uh, opportunities because women would eventually play a role in marriage and that will somehow hinder their commitment to their jobs. So they're not selected for leadership positions or for scholarships or for opportunities to grow on the job. So you get to try to you know, get into those kinds of questions. And of course, in the larger community, the women in your families who are navigating marriage issues, relationships, inequality in so many different things, 
And you get to see the burden, you know, uh, imposed on women just by the fact that they are women. As I said, you can never neglect that. You always sense that in uh, your relationships with your friends, with your family members, with your colleagues, with the women and men who works with you. And of course, there are opportunities. I, as I said, I'm an Advent reader. So eventually I started writing in a Saudi newspaper and all their articles somehow. And that happened, of course, by coincidence. Someone suggested that I send some articles and then it became more like a commitment. But, you know, getting my voice out there, it was such a, a strange thing that for women who might not be recognized as equal in her own country or in her own community, to have a voice and influence where you are now being read, whether you are being connected to different groups of or segments in the society, the writers, the influencers in decision makings, the um, educated people who are actually involved in public debates. It somehow elevated my voice to a different level and to different networks. So this is how I get in touch with people who are advocating for more reforms, for human rights, for gender equality, and I became a member in different groups, uh, women and, and, and activists in general and intellectuals. So I think that in itself, the experience, uh, the personal experience, the professional experience, and the ability to find a platform where I can voice those kinds of of issues have actually transformed my role into someone who's trying to do more, someone who's trying to push for uh, better reforms in my country. So in light with your work on advocacy, can you tell us more about the public campaigns you were part of and about your writings on the right to drive in the male guardianship system? Yeah, things have actually, because of the advent of the, of the internet and social connectedness, people started to organize them, themselves, being able to find like-minded people. And I was one of the people who started blogging at the time as a way to avoid the censorship in official writings or official Saudi media. So by blogging, by using Twitter, uh, we were able to reach out and organize and find ways to basically mobilize our own forces instead of just writing without any kinds of feedback. I was in the U.S. for my PhD at the time, and it allowed me more accessibility to meet people more, talk to different groups, including human rights organizations and media professionals. So at the time, I used to have that many, many women who would reach out to me saying, please write about those issues or other women writers would campaign to write articles at the same time on an issue that is of a concern that an incident, for instance, of killing a child because of violence or something like that. So I, I was... Um, Contacted by Manala Sharif in 2011, she said, I'm driving in Saudi Arabia, I'm trying to find uh, you know, other women who would amplify our voices and would call for abolishing the women driving ban. I wrote about that and other women started to think together. Of course, there was a bit of a chaos at the beginning, but then in October 2013, October 26, 2013, we decided to have reinvention of the campaign. We found an opportunity because at the time the government uh, was um, making like this sweep um, deportation for so many illegal residents in Saudi Arabia, uh, which included uh, many of the male drivers for women. So we thought this is an ideal time where we can just you know, address the government again and demand that there is a need for more equality and independence for women so that they don't have to rely always on someone to commute. And of course, Saudi Arabia at the time, there is no public transportation. There is no other means for women except to wait for someone, uh, you know, either to pay for someone or to wait for someone in the family if they're willing to take their places, which limited the women's engagement, you know, in life in general, let alone their educational or professional pursuits. 
So at the time, I wrote a petition with with other women who were activists. Some of them are women from the campaign to demand women to drive in 1990. Uh, many of them remained uh, writers and advocates. Uh, we wrote a campaign. We wrote a public petition. We wrote. Uh, we had a, a website. We decided to drive instead of just writing. So filming ourselves while driving was a strong a signal to the government that it is not the society that rejects women driving. No one is stopping the women, none of their families, none of the people on the street. It's the officials who are actually targeting women drivers. So we wanted to show that this is such a simple thing that the government can, which happened, of course, eventually. It was such a decision by the government. And it is the no-hanging fruit, basically. So we felt like this is something that can be done. Many of the women drivers then uh, were detained for questioning. Many of them were sentenced, but somehow the sentencing wasn't implemented. Uh, there was sentencing of plugging, for instance. But it made us, you know, like in a small community of activists in which we felt like if we, are, we were able to create a model uh, where we mobilize the masses through using online means, hashtags, videos and photographs and writings and you know international media and local media we can definitely use those kinds of resources to amplify the voices and the demands of women and then in 2016 i was also in the u.s doing my postdoctoral research uh we joined uh, you know the efforts again to create a campaign to abolish the male guardianship system which is a system that requires women to get the permission of a male guardian to access so many services by the government, including national identification documents, passports, travel, enrolling in university, admittance in a hospital, you know, getting an invasive medical procedure. There were so many uh, manifestations of this kind of, of law, and it was very arbitrary, depended on officials to accept it or not. Sometimes it's mandatory by, by the law, but even you can't get a release from prison or a, a state institutions if your guardian isn't consenting and willing to take you back. So basically, all those manifestations of the system really restricted women's autonomy to a greater deal. So we felt like we can do more on that. We partnered with Human Rights Watch. We released a report called Boxed In, which really detailed the recommendations and the research we conducted with other Saudi women and in partnership with the Human Rights Watch. I have written about that on the foreign affairs and other places. Other women have written blogs as well and testimonies. And it was very well received by the community in Saudi Arabia. We get around 15,000 Saudi women and men who supported our petition for abolishing the system at the time before the government, of course, cracks down on, on the website and other people who have actually campaigned for it. And of course, many of the things at the time did not immediately reach the fruition, but we felt like we have a voice, we have agency, we have a way to express our needs because of the collective efforts. Uh, so this is how I got into, you know, this kind of not only community of supports inside Saudi Arabia with the Saudi women and men, but also with people, you know, who are our allies in the greater feminist movements and in the greater uh, human rights community. Thank you, Dr. Hela. How do you continue working on the issue of violence against women today from a feminist perspective? So the violence is rooted in gender discrimination against women, right? So violence uh, happens when uh, women are suppressed by social norms, by legal system, in, in even within the family. So it just makes women more vulnerable to abuse because someone has the power to decide on women's lives and there is no system of protection to ensure that women can get the resources if such violation takes place. Actually, my PhD dissertation was on 
intimate partner violence in Saudi Arabia, where I interviewed 200 Saudi women who were frequenting primary health care clinics in Jeddah. I asked them specifically on physical violence from husbands or spouses and whether they had you know, history of violence in, in their own families or for the husband's families. I also asked them about coping mechanism and um, their reactions to violence, their ability. Of course, the findings were very much telling that the majority of women were poor, actually. They didn't have an income of their own. So financial dependency is also a very strong predictor of women's subjection to violence. Uh, many, for instance, half of the women expressed that they have been beaten by their husbands. Issues of control, for instance, controlling husbands is very much predicting women's, uh, you know, experience of violence. So when I was talking, you know, to read, there were not so many things happening in terms of research and, and field work or community mobilization around violence. That was in 2012. So at the time, I decided to use blogging as a way to try to provide for women some information on the issue. And this is not a normal issue. It shouldn't be normalized. And they should actually realize the impact of that and the, the wide adverse health impact of women. Some of them are short-term and some of them are long-term impacts you know, on their health and the functioning of the family, the social functioning of the family. This violence is a vicious cycle, actually. It continues to breed uh, you know, in the next generations. So um, I had a blog called Saudi Women's Rights in which I translated most of the information that I got through research on uh, women's experience uh, with violence in traditional society in Saudi Arabia. What kind of resources were very limited are out there? Uh, what are the definition of violence? What are the manifestation of violence? How women can understand her situation? Uh, what are the danger assessment, basically tools? So, of course, the international, as I said, because it's rooted in gender discrimination, the international treaties in which uh, Saudi Arabia has uh, ratified or committed to implementing in Saudi Arabia, but of course, a very limited you know, uh, level, or maybe sometimes like the CEDO, for instance, to none. <laughs> you know, it's very much like very artificial commitment. So through the website, through this blog, I got a lot of requests for help in which the community of women activists that I have built over the years were very helpful. Some of them were business women. Some of them were working in uh, social services. Some of them were psychiatrists. And some of them were women who can help, basically, who can provide legal fees, who can provide even places of residence for women who are experiencing really serious violence. They were sometimes writers who amplified the voices of the women in their own writing. So the women activist group were very helpful in supporting the demands and needs for, you know, the, the absent, basically, demands and needs those uh, survivors of violence needed. And not necessarily survivors of violence, but women experiencing all kinds of abuses by their own guardians, women who are not able to get a divorce, women who are not able to enroll in a scholarship, women who are not able to live alone, basically, outside of a controlling environment. You get to see the impact of having this kind of community support. And of course, sometimes people in the official National Commission for Human Rights, which is a government-sponsored entity, were actually you know, trying to reach help, especially for women who were migrant, who did not have any backup or means of support inside Saudi Arabia. Domestic home workers, women who were abused by their migrant husbands who were living in Saudi Arabia under the sponsorship of her husband, who was abusive. So sometimes in the cases of those women, we needed more of a formal support rather than the support of the community. And I found that sometimes people in the community were able, in the official you know, uh, National Human Rights Commission, were able to intervene and help. So I couldn't help all the, the women, of course. 
I couldn't provide support for all the women, but I was able to sense the, the needs at least and to, to be able to find resources, though very limited and small. But you know, later on, when the government, when, when King Salman came to power and, and decided to crack down on any voices outside of the official narrative, basically, on all the civil society voices, what happened is that I couldn't really reach out to anyone. He actually uh, went after all the feminists. He went after all the community activists, put them in prison under smear campaigns of, of treason, basically, and under charges that they have been agents of embassies and agents of other very much unfounded uh, accusations, uh, subjected them to torture so that they would be afraid enough or broken not to be able to continue their activism or continue working for their causes. So it is kind of impossible now, honestly, to um, connect with people inside Saudi Arabia and to be able to provide those kinds of support that I used to have, though very limited. But of course, outside, we're trying to organize ourselves more in order to amplify their needs. So, for instance, we have a community of Saudis in diaspora. Some of them are very much like active in journalism or in academia or in human rights you know, uh, circles. Uh, we're trying to have more of a collective action to pressure for more reforms from outside, using podcasts, using political organizations, uh, using engagement with decision makers and influencers outside so that they can support our demands for more reforms. So these are the things that I'm trying to do from outside, but it is not directly, of course, through the community inside Saudi Arabia because of the heightened risks imposed on people inside. Thank you, Dr. Hela. When you left Saudi Arabia, what were the circumstances? Was there a specific moment that led to this decision to leave? Basically, all my educational journey and all my activism has been geared towards a life inside Saudi Arabia. I never planned to leave Saudi. I never planned to basically work in any other place. I felt like I'm most useful, I'm most relevant, I'm most grateful to the people of Saudi Arabia, and I'm most committed to better, basically, my community and my people. So it wasn't planned, actually, my leave. I was on a scholarship, as I've mentioned, and I was signed up with a job inside Saudi Arabia to finish my postdoctoral fellowship in the U.S., and then returned to Saudi. I was at the time developing an app, which we got the funding for from a Saudi agency. The app was supposed to be a pilot study on encouraging doctors to identify women at high risk of violence and to enable the doctors to refer them to relevant resources and uh, services, also to educate the women on how to protect themselves if they can, of course, and to reach those authorities. So the app was basically more of a development of my own research, but again, it's more of a translating research into actionable thing because most of the times the first responders are the primary care physicians and doctors who come in contact with uh, women or, or nurses. So we started doing all the work and you know, everything was in place. In 2015, I was asked to write two articles, two op-ed articles in different in The Guardian and in the Foreign Policy on my views about whether there will be a change in the political environment inside Saudi Arabia with the ascent of King Salman to power. Based on my own understanding of the struggle, you know, under King Abdullah, late King Abdullah. So I, I think I, at the time I wanted to be as honest as possible in writing it. Many people believed that the articles were very much very critical of the of King Salman era. I mean, because of his own 
you know, 40 years of rule of, of Riyadh governess, uh, many people realize where they're getting into. He was very oppressive, very authoritarian, and he is not someone who's engaging with the greater civil society or tolerance idea. So we understood why Mohammed bin Salman was chosen, basically. And the war in Yemen and everything that manifested, it very much shows this kind of closed mentality, if I would say, and more oppressive mentality. I felt at the time I have to be as honest as possible, since this is an informative you know, opinion. Uh, but many people who have read the article said that you know there might be a problem. You shouldn't be talking in, in such a critical way. And we've seen then during 2015 and 16, the two years where Hamid bin Salman first started to, to show or to come to power, uh, we've seen you know so many instances where activists were summoned for interrogation and investigation. It was in 2016 where some of these activists contacted me and told me the whole interrogation was about you. I was really surprised at the time because my activism was very public, was very known. My writings were very known and I've never had any encounter with the authorities before. So even though I was very visible in campaigns before and in writings, I've never been summoned for interrogation or uh, detained or placed under travel ban. But then the activist who contacted me told me that it is not only with one person, more than one person, that um, the least I could face if I returned to Saudi Arabia at the time, 2016, is that I would be placed under travel ban. And that's the least that they expected. So there might be something more. And of course, someone who is trying to build a career, trying to be more vocal, felt like this is something I can't really face, basically. And also, I received a call from the Saudi embassy in, in the U.S. asking me not, not to participate in a conference. So I felt like this is a change, basically, in attitude, despite using language where the government is committed to implement the language of human rights, the language of respecting the commitments of the Saudi um, regime or the Saudi government when it comes to you know, the international treaties and conventions. But that didn't really help so much, obviously. They were trying to silence everyone and to allow only one group of people who are the pro-government to amplify the voices. So at the time, I felt like this is not safe for me at all. So I decided not to go back. I resigned from my job in Saudi with a lot of, I would say, a broken heart. <laughs> you know? I felt like this is something I've worked so hard for. And uh, all my work was coming to near fulfillment. But yeah, I had to abandon the project. I had to stop you know, thinking about going back and to find ways to continue working from outside. So yeah, that's, these are the circumstances of my departure. Do you think you would ever want to go back to Saudi Arabia? Of course I want to. Nobody wants to be uprooted. Nobody wants to be in a place of no belonging. Everybody have this kind of, you know, belonging to, to their own people, to their own families. I've missed a lot from my loved ones, you know, milestones for the last decade. So for sure, I want to be part of their lives. Uh, they're very important to me. Friendship, you know, that has been lost. Uh, but of course, it's very difficult to, to to imagine this is doable or possible. We're not only worried about our own safeties, but also the safety of our loved ones, our collective action. We've seen the government being ruthless, basically, in applying these kinds of collective punishments uh, for families, not only for you know the people that they think or perceive as as threats. So no one wants to subject their own families or loved ones to any punishments. That remains a concern under the current circumstances. But of course, I believe that at one point, 
you know, the right thing will be done and people will realize, you know, that this is a situation that is not sustainable. And I hope all the Saudi people outside will find their country safe, embracing and tolerant, you know, hopefully at one point because of the collective action of everyone inside and outside. And I think at that time, of course, I want to go back. I want to see my family and loved ones. What is your life like today? It's a continuous reinvention of what I can do. So I've been doing fellowships in research, in academic research, think tanks or centers. been doing, I've deviated a little bit at the beginning when I made my first transition. And I worked in a think tank thinking about putting up some blog posts and papers on the situation of women's rights in the Arab Gulf states. The think tank was based in D.C. It was more of a political science than health research. I've written for the Washington Post after the passing of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I had to do that because at the time I felt this is a, a really departure from everything that we used to. And we needed to stand together and to support each other because there is no accountability whatsoever. There is more brutality, ruthlessness, real disregard for human lives that we didn't you know, expect. So I wanted to stand up and to show at least the sign of solidarity. We're not breaking up. We're not shying out or you know, uh, caving in. We're, we're continuing. So yeah, with writings, with producing some research and now, as I said, I'm trying to find ways to support my country from outside with the collective action of other activists. Orzi worked with Amnesty on releasing a podcast called The Great Saudi Podcast, which will featuring themes relevant to human rights, narrated and prepared by Saudi activists. I have done a, a series on the first year with Saudi women activists who decided to stay outside, so that who remained very active in the debate around women's rights in Saudi. It was about feminism and the movement, the social movement for feminists and the impact of feminism in general inside Saudi. And then I'm preparing for a second season, hopefully, time comes. I'm also an adjunct professor of health services research, uh, teaching two PhD classes now. So hopefully this semester, you know, comes, uh, comes really well. So we'll see what happens. So this is, you know, writing, thinking, uh, helping Saudi community outside and, of course, trying to survive as a, in academia as I'm trying, you know, to um, work on my own career. But yeah, this is, this is me now. You were the recipient of the Freedom House's Freedom Award in 2016 and the Alison Deforge Award for Extraordinary Activism in 2018. These awards showcase your achievements in leadership to protect human rights, democracy, and ensure justice. And this really makes you a role model for younger generations. So to end the interview, we'd like to ask you what kind of message you would give to young Saudi Arabian women and men and to our listeners. I think to live in integrity and to persevere in ways that, you know, would enable them to feel safe, to realize their full potential. And in order to do so, they need to understand that they can never be in a place of respect and dignity and um, safety without working collectively. Even if they come from a privileged background, even if they come with opportunities that were not available to others, protecting one's life is not is never enough. Or protecting their you know their own interest is not enough in a climate that puts you always in vulnerability or at jeopardy. 
So I would say support the community at large, support the climate that is fair for all. And I think every one of us is capable to do so within their own capacity. I wasn't a full-fledged you know, writer or um, campaigner or researcher from the get-go, but I built those kinds of tools collectively with people and I was given opportunities you know, to do so. The recognition by awards is just a way to highlight that we can do that. We can be more than our own smaller selves. So I think my, my message to people uh, inside Saudi Arabia and outside is that they have the potential, they have the agency, they have the opportunity. All they have to do is to prepare themselves. And you know, once they're prepared, once they are in a place where they can help and serve and support, and to support the right things, not the powerful things, because it's easier to be masked, to be very much swayed by people in power. It's easier to see that people in power have a lot of legitimacy that is not warranted. But to find really what is rightful, find really what is worthy to support is the difficult thing. So I think for, for them, it's important to be as perceptive as possible to what really matters, not to be you know, swayed or deceived by all those calls of empowerment that comes from governments and the use of women's rights cards as a way to showcase that the government is advancing while silencing everyone's voices and agencies and to try to use their own spaces to the limit that is that they're capable of through either writing, supporting, lending support even to people who, who might need it. And I think at one point they will be in a place where they can make an impact and difference. So as they said, never doubt that a small group of people, committed people, can actually make a change. So I, I do believe in that now that, you know, I've started with very few women, very few men, but we actually made the huge changes in the lives of so many. So yeah, this is my message. Try to have the integrity to remain true, to remain supportive, to find opportunities to support the right causes rather than the propaganda and the facade of change, which is not true inside Saudi. The most important thing is to keep supporting people calling for rights and freedom inside Saudi Arabia. This is the most important thing. These are people who are silenced and it's our duty outside to amplify their voices, to keep reminding everyone about them. And by protecting those people who are actually the, the real cause of change inside Saudi Arabia, we're actually supporting a different Saudi Arabia, a place where people can actually enjoy their full potential without any kinds of restrictions. So I... Um, I think that's the main message from speaking out uh, is to keep reminding everyone with the feminists being silenced, with the activists, the lawyers, the journalists, the writers, the academics who have contributed a lot to the public debate and to the push for more rights and freedom. And we, we have no uh, ways of reaching them or we have no ways of listening from them anymore. So I think these are the, the, the people that we need to keep supporting. Thank you very much, Dr. Hela. It's been a pleasure to interview you. And on behalf of ECDHR and WHRD MENA Coalition, we would like to thank you again for sharing with us your story and all of your experiences. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 
On behalf of ECDHR, thank you for joining us and for listening to our podcast. The next episode will be available next Friday. You can find a few recommended readings from our interviewees in the show notes for each episode. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to our social media channels if you want to learn more about the human rights situation in the GCC countries.